Hello, and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Sarah Spencer, and today I'm guest hosting an interview with a very special guest, Juan Lavista Ferez, Chief Scientist and Director of Microsoft's AI for Good Research Lab. Welcome, Juan. Hi, Sarah. Pleasure to meet you, and thank you for the invitation. So tell us a little bit about the AI for Good Research Lab. What are you working on now, and what are you most excited about? So I'm Juan Lavita Ferrez, and uh, we started this lab a couple of years ago because what we realized is that from a philanthropic point of view, all majority of the organizations in the world have some philanthropic arm, but what we realized that particularly in the case of AI, there is a gap where majority of the expertise, particularly in areas like machine learning and AI, is focused on the on the technical companies, on the technological companies, or financial services. And it's not enough to give like grants because the organizations that we work, they don't have the structure and they don't have a way to hire this AI talent, hire or retain this AI talent. So in order for us to help, it's not enough to give those grants. We actually need, like our, our idea was, we need to give our knowledge, basically. And that's how we started. And that's what we, like our difference is to help them with, with our expertise to solve and partner with them to solve their, their problems. We work in very diverse type of projects because we have basically in each one of the pillars of we're working for last two years, we've been working a lot on COVID. We are working with Noah, for example, of identifying beluga whale. We are working with the Carter Center of identifying from data, the type of guerrillas and, and activities around the world. We are working on with an, another organization and University of Pennsylvania of understanding social networks of giraffes, a lot of work on, from an AI for Earth perspective, we do a lot of work on satellite imagery. And that also for disaster response operations, we are also using satellite imagery. So it's amazingly diverse, the type of projects. And certainly a lot of these projects are very challenging, but it's, it's really rewarding to be working in this space. That's amazing. Yeah, that is a diverse range of projects. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how you identify the specific problems to bring AI into and how, how what does that co-creation process look like with the problem owners? So one thing that for us is, is really important, the first step is to make sure that we have people on the other side that are subject matter experts on the problems that we're working, correct? The reason we can work on these very diverse set of projects is that fundamentally underneath every single one of these problems, we just have data, right? What is very different and very important is to understand that on the other side, you have the subject matter expertise that understand, very well understands the problem. It would be dangerous to work in any one of these problems if you don't understand the problem. If, if we have only data scientists solving these problems, that would be a, a very big mistake. So our first stage is to identify, do we have the right organization on the other side and the right experts that actually understands the problem? That would be stage number one. The stage number two is, is there data, correct? So particularly in the humanitarian action space or even accessibility space, 
there's a lot of very important problems out there. Unfortunately, there's not enough data or there's no data, correct? So the second question we have, is there data? Even before that is like, well, if we can solve the problem, can this problem have an impact basically? And that you start with a big funnel with a huge amount of problems and then you start going down. It's like, is the problem important or not? Do we have the right experts? Is there data? Can we get access to the data, correct? Meaning, can we work on top of the data? And for a lot of times, for good privacy reasons, unfortunately, that data cannot be shared or we cannot access the data. And then on top of that, it's like not all the problems that, even if you have data, even if the problem is important, sometimes those problems cannot be solved using AI or data science. And once you start going down through the panel, at the end, you have very small amount of projects, not very small amount of projects, but you have at the end, you have very impactful projects that you can solve, you have data, and another point you make the call based on the impact that the project can have. And we also need to understand, well, another part that is important for us to solve, to, to answer is that if you solve this problem, can you do the transfer learning to that organization so they can actually use these models basically later on? So yeah, that's in a nutshell, how do we select projects? Yeah, that's fascinating. Could you speak a little bit about how sort of human behavior or the or the politics play into the solutions you design or equally the problems you select? I mentioned that because there's a fair amount of people within the humanitarian community that some of these problems related to displacement or conflict and humanitarian need, natural disasters, ultimately have some drivers or some root causes. And I wonder how how you approach that and how you control for that in the in either the design of the solution or or the problem that the problems that you select we haven't had that experience from our perspective we need we need to make sure we work with organizations like for example the red cross or carter center where at the end of the day like you need to have a trust in these organizations that they will they do they will use the model for the right reasons. I don't know if that's your, the question you're asking. Yeah, that is. Yeah, to some respect, yes. And I think the the other critical part is that some of the problems related to environmental degradation, for example, or climate change, you know, humanitarian seas are driven by political solutions and choices that human beings made. So I guess there's a balance there about the impact or the scope or the extent that technologies can deliver a solution when ultimately the last mile might be down to choices made by local politicians or local policymakers in a given example. And I wonder if there is a, you know, if that factors in to your calculus when trying to identify the scenarios or examples where your interventions would yield the most impact. Yeah. Another point, again, we are not like we would typically rely on the expertise that these organizations that we trust have around those issues, basically. We haven't had examples of these. I have to be transparent here. We haven't had examples of these where we see political ramifications of these problems, basically. But but we would rely on these organizations. Make sense? Yeah. I'll just break in and say it's rather interesting because AI for good is new and it, this is a whole new world. and. It's- interesting domain to think about that and think about IP law and what you work on. Yeah. One thing related to IP is all the projects that we work, we open source. So everything we work, we publish, we publish with the organization 
and we open source everything we like all the solutions are open source basically if possible we would open source the data sometimes it's not possible to open source the data because the data is owned by an organization or something but we we do our best to make sure that we give back to society also not just for that project but for anybody else that wants to work in a similar project that's a great segue, actually, because there's two questions related to that that I'd like to ask. The first one is about is specific to the humanitarian community with a sort of capital H. And I mean, the agencies, you mentioned the Red Cross already, agencies that are really mandated to provide life-saving assistance in humanitarian crises and natural disasters. You may have seen most recently that the ICRC, International Committee of the Red Cross, had a significant cyber attack in the last couple of weeks. Significant amounts of their data was hacked. How would you, you know, knowing that this platform right now reaches a, a number of humanitarian actors, what would you say to them to sort of ease some kind of reticence or anxiety around the need for data to power really effective AI tools? How can, how can we bring the humanitarian community to the table on, on data protection and security issues? First, I think the cybersecurity, cybersecurity attacks have been increasing in all basically affecting every every type of organization in the world basically and that's very unfortunately and and also unfortunately we see the trend that the amount of cyber attacks have been increasing over time and i do think that unfortunately for the world organizations need to make sure that we have the right investment and the right tools to defend against cybersecurity attacks or at least be aware that this is something that it will unfortunately continue happening. That's something that is an unfortunately part of the world. My team also works on a different side. We also work on cybersecurity, so we are aware of the problems that we have seen from a cybersecurity point of view. Answering the case of data, and going back to what I, I mentioned at the, at the beginning, is that there's a lot of problems out there that can be solved and should be solved with data, right? For example, in the case of, like, we, we're just finishing a project on forest fires in India where because we have data through satellite data, we, you can make better predictions of where is the next fire and you can use that information to basically build better models. We are working, for example, now on leprosy with in collaboration with Novartis Foundation where we're using models, mainly in Brazil and India, you still have cases of, of leprosy. And thanks to the fact that you have organizations that have collected data now hopefully it's going to be easier to early detect leprosy. Leprosy is something that completely can be cured. The cure for leprosy is free as long as it can be identified early on. What usually happens is that there's not enough doctors to go and basically detect leprosy. And that those are areas where, particularly we see this a lot in the medical world, basically, where AI can actually help a lot in cases where there's not enough doctors, basically. So two years ago, we worked in diabetic renopathy. Diabetic renopathy is, uh, is one of the main causes of blindness in the world. And like there's 400 million people that suffer from diabetes in the world. A third of those people will develop diabetic renopathy if they're not treated. Unfortunately, there's only 200,000 ophthalmologists. So there's no way, there's no this is no longer a problem where you can throw money to it. There's no way to solve that problem without AI. And because of the amazing fact that we have open data sets or that is already labeled on diabetic renopathy, 
Microsoft and other organizations around the world, like this is one of the very common examples of have been able to actually train and develop these models. And I think this is, is something that is already making a difference and we hope to even make more difference because it's basically helping, helping doctors basically like getting these patients faster in many ways to treat them. So in the case of humanitarian action, it's, it's similar in many ways. There are problems out there that can be solved using data, but we need to understand that in order to solve them, you need you actually need data, correct? And that's, a, that's an area that, that I think hopefully we will see more investments and, and hopefully we will see also more open data sets. Like data needs to be, like we need to understand that data is a social good in many ways. It's something that, that organizations or, or companies should be able to use to help solve some of these problems. Make sense? Yeah, the UN's annual State of the World's Humanitarian Data Report was just released a few weeks ago, and I know they've the Center for Humanitarian Data housed at OCHA has been doing a lot of work to try and improve access to humanitarian data, essentially. But in my experience, a large number of humanitarian actors, including the significantly large ones with significant budgets, still have data siloed, you know, with, with un, unstructured heaps and heaps of unstructured data, but not necessarily the technical resources internally to clean and, and manage that, but equally finding it difficult to find the support to turn that data into a valuable asset to drive better decision-making. Do you have tips, top tips for them or solutions that you might be able to offer? Yeah, I've seen those problems firsthand with, with these large organizations. And, and I think a lot of these organizations realize that they need to start investing in, not in data collection, because like you mentioned, a lot of times the data was collected. It was collected in, in a way that, that cannot be used today. Like what's collected in analog is in reports or is in PDF files. So I do think that there is a need for these organizations to go through digital transformation that can understand the value of data and the value for them to use that data. Also the value of standards, basically. I would love to see in the next few years more and more investment in standards where I collect data, another organization collect data, but we collect it in a way that later on that data can, can be used and seen as a, as a sink, like can be used to solve the same problems, but basically like is collected in a similar way, is stored in a similar way, and hopefully a lot of those data sources will also be open for, for others to, to use. But I do completely recognize the problem that a majority of the issues today is the fact that either the data doesn't exist or the data is in a format that cannot be used, either unstructured, completely analog, or in a way that is not easily consumable by algorithms. I always say that like the easy part in a data science project is to train a model. The difficult part is to actually get the data in a format that is usable to train a model. There's a joke that data scientists spend 80% of the time wrangling about data and 20% of the time complaining about wrangling about data. And that's true. It's like majority of the efforts are related to dealing with data problems. So. Yeah, that's right. I think also the humanitarian industry writ large right now is really grappling with, you know, unconscious or conscious bias within the movement, trying to decolonize 
humanitarian aid writ large across the whole of the industry. And, you know, there's this movement for localizing aid and empowering organizations and agencies in the global south to lead humanitarian response. So I guess that also raises the question about the sort of integrity and the innate bias or discrimination that would exist in data collected by humanitarian agencies in the 80s and 90s if we're, you know, if we have these broader social justice movements within the industry already questioning past practice, that seems to me that there might be a question about the integrity of that data as well. Yeah, and, and that's that's something that we, like, as part of what we do, basically, is one of the first questions we have, and is that, can we trust the data that is collected, right? And that's something that, again, it goes through the, the fact that we need to work with subject matter experts about these problems, and they will tell you, basically, like... Because again, like no algorithm will understand that if the data has any sort of bias, the algorithms will not understand on the, the, the way that the data was collected, the algorithm will not understand that basically. It will just treat it like that. You need to work with subject matter experts that can tell you basically the if there's any bias in the data or how the data was collected. One of the best examples for this is that let's say you have a you go and collect all the data from all birth in the US or in the, any other country in the world, and you take the premature babies on that data set, and, and you train that data set against, like you train them on a the model, the probability of, of surviving for that baby. What the model will tell you is that if you have two babies, two premature babies, one of those, the mother smoked when, when she was pregnant, and the other one, the mother didn't smoke. What the model will tell you is that the probability of, of the probability of survival of the baby that that the mother smoked is, is higher. And of course, it has nothing to do like it's not that the smoking is helping. Actually, smoking is one of the causes of low birth weight, yeah, yeah. prematurity. But among all the causes of prematurity, is one of the that is less severe, and that's why the model will actually learn that well, there's higher chances of surviving if the mother smoked, basically. Yeah. Right? you need to work with subject matter experts that understand the causes and how these correlations work. Models will not understand causation. So, and that, again, this is just one example, but there's hundreds of examples of related to problems in the bias and the data collection, correct? So, yeah, I fully agree. And, and that that's why it's so relevant to understand and work with subject matter experts and, and understand the potential biases that the data has, basically. So... This is a great time maybe to talk about the common data model and, you know, thinking about the importance of metadata and structuring data, you know, metadata, how important is metadata to improving data collection and looking ahead? Like as engineers working in the AI for Good Lab, you see the importance of standardization and initiatives like the common data model, maybe. We definitely see a huge value in standardization. Again, I don't see a one solution solves all the problems, but for different type of data, if we have if we have organizations that work on standards and we have other organizations that can respect those standards and this is not just standards on the schemas of the tables it's also standards on how did you get the data in the first place let me give you an example for that it's like during the covid time we start working with the department of health and other organizations in the us because we want to start surfacing data from them and one of the things that we early, we realized early on was that one of the, like a very important metric that COVID has is the, basically how many, like the, how many tests, what is the test positivity rate, correct? Because that's a very good indicator of how 
the what is the like affected the, the evolution of the pandemic and if the pandemic is growing or not. If you look at the states, that metric meant very, very different things for many different states, right? You have states that would say, well, that is, I take the test and I divide the positive test divided by all tests, correct? Another state would say, no, I take the individuals and I divide it by the actual individuals. And there was other variations of that. And when you have all the data, it was like you're comparing apples to oranges to strawberries, basically. Like, and this, there was a common schema, correct? Like it wasn't a problem of the schema. The problem was that the interpretation of the schema was really different. So I do think that, and again, you could run analysis on top of that data and get like why Nevada has a test positivity rate that is so much higher and, and the effective reproductive number is, is not is not being affected it was like well because that number doesn't mean the same thing that you have in other states so i, I am a firm believer that you need standards the, the fact that we had in, in the us and in the world these amazing data visualization tools that could compare countries was because you had at least some common standards and those common standards didn't exist in many ways before the pandemic it became needed when a lot of the organizations started publishing these numbers and in order for a country to be in the dashboard they needed to 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 store the data in a way or you had a, a software developer that converted that data in a, in a common standard so yeah i do think we need to continue investing in standard common schemas are not enough you need good documentation and you need basically to invest to make sure that people understand what to put in that in in those fields so yeah it's interesting that you bring up covid because i wonder if you could speak from your experience working on the response to the pandemic, you know, what the benefits have been with regards to not only accelerating effective responses to contain the pandemic, but also sort of the acceleration of technology for good initiatives across the world. And if, you know, it, it, in some ways, as you said, it sort of forced an acceleration in, in, in terms of data, but it also, I think, was a significant wake-up call for a lot of agencies, development and humanitarian agencies, to realize how technology could be leveraged to advance progress against some of their specific objectives. Yeah, we saw that firsthand, like here locally in Washington state, when the pandemic hit uh, Kirkland and Seattle, that's what the city I lead, was the first one we had our first death of COVID. So very early on, we started collaborating with the Department of Health because we wanted to help them with COVID. And it was, it became really evident at that point that these organizations didn't have the data collection in place to actually handle a pandemic. Like they had the systems to handle a virus, but not in a way that you could handle a pandemic, basically. So a lot of these organizations had to invest in digital transformation on their side, like, like and Microsoft, on, on the case of the Department of Health and, and many other organizations, we helped them a lot with that. We, we provided a lot of, a lot of our engineers when they are, we had our data scientists working with them side by side to make sure that we had the first stage was, can we actually have data through, falling through a system so we know how many cases we have, how many deaths we have, like how many people hospitalized we have, because that was fundamental data that was needed in order to manage the, whether I, I had enough uh, space in a hospital or not, or whether I was going to run out of capacity. So the first few months of the pandemic where all, everything was about, do we have the data through the system? And a lot of that investment hasn't been in vain in the sense that I think the world today 
is going to be much better prepared for the next pandemic, basically. Correct. So I don't think we were prepared for this pandemic in many ways, but I think we are we are going to be prepared for the next pandemic from a pure data systems perspective. And that definitely was something that across the world, every organization across countries had to invest in similar tools, basically. And there was a lot of open source solutions. There was a lot of times like something that was amazing that we also participated in is that the CDC decided to open source the competition of trying to forecast what's going to happen with the pandemic. And that was a great initiative. And you have like immediately after they released it, like 30, 40 teams across the US and across the world, like competing with each other on trying to build the best predictive model of what was going to happen with the pandemic. Basically, We were part of that. Our team was part of that. And that also forced standardization, forced the fact that you needed the data in a way. I have to give a lot of credit to a lot of other organizations like, like our world in data, for example, or even here like COVID Act Now. Many organizations decided to do the heavy lifting on shifting all the data that was collected at the county or state level in a way that could be centralized and shareable, basically. And they opened the data source for other organizations to do. A lot of studies and a lot of research was done against some of those data sources that these organizations put together and, and helped standardize. So I do think that, yes, there was a huge amount of investment, particularly the data collection side, that I hope and I, I know that will help for the next pandemic and will help also these organizations to act not just with the pandemic, but with their, all the day-to-day jobs they have, basically. So, Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I wonder if, as part of that reflection, if you could offer some views as to how you saw sort of digital literacy change. I think in a lot of public policy spaces, whether that's domestic U.S. public policy or, you know, overseas development initiatives, digital literacy is mixed, in some cases fairly low, and oftentimes you need staff or teams that are bilingual in some ways that understand the issues and advice from technology experts like yourself, but also understand the critical problems on the ground and the nature of those problem sets. And I wonder if you could speak to how either the pandemic or recently in the last, you know, in the last three years of the AI for Good Research Lab, how you've seen digital literacy changing and maybe correlated with increased connectivity across the globe. So the first thing I would say is that Definitely the amount of people that would be having the ability to have a conference call through Teams or through Zoom went to the roof. And I do think that that helped a lot of organizations that before it was difficult for these organizations to even have a meeting with someone outside. Totally. Uh, suddenly suddenly became open to the world. And, and it, now there was no more. Before they, may, they maybe could meet someone in a conference because they would fly to that place. Now, suddenly, a lot of the organizations and people in these organizations were connected with others across the world. And that's something that a lot of that investment, like, is going to just not, not, was not only for COVID, but for, for their lives and for their, for their work, basically. So I do think that made a, a huge difference. At the beginning, I have to say that, that for a lot of people, that was a very hard thing, correct? So if you are not used to using computers and now that's the only way that you can do to communicate, it was difficult. But but we saw, like at least on the on the Microsoft side, the, the huge uptick on platforms like Team that tells you that a lot of people in the world actually were able to move into that digital transformation. So that, that's, that's one thing. We saw it with students, correct? So 
<laughs> I have three kids and I can tell you that like, like now all of them are very familiar with these type of tools, basically. And that also generated a lot of inequalities because even in countries like the US, not all these kids have computers, basically. And, and I think a lot of public schools did a very good job of, of sharing computers and, and giving computers to kids, but that wasn't the case. Another project that we have been working is, is understanding broadband in the US and, and that there's a lot of inequalities and that you have a huge amount of children that couldn't participate in school because they didn't have a access to broadband or, or access to internet, basically. So that, that also, I think, unfortunately, COVID also, like in one way it helped the digital transformation, but in another way, it also like opened up a bigger gap of inequalities in many ways, no? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an open question for a lot of people, whether the accelerated uptake of new technologies will be the great equalizer among society or the great polarizer. And I think just the way things have played out in different fields with regards to domestic politics, as well as, you know, what we're seeing right now in terms of how technology is being used in conflicts around the world to fuel misinformation, disinformation, and hate speech, just from a conflict perspective, and the unintended consequences of that, it's hard to, to come down one way or the other, I think, on that. But we've talked a lot already about some of the key takeaways. And, you know, you guys have written a paper last year called becoming good at AI for good. And we've already touched on, I think, on some of your key findings and key takeaways. But I did want to ask you, you know, if you had the sort of elevator pitch in the British government, we often talk about um, doing an elevator pitch for ministers in 30 seconds or less. And if you had a, the sort of pitch to, to someone in 30 seconds or less, what do you think it takes to be good at AI for good? I think it's, it's really important to have the right subject matter experts on the other side that work with you. The data science aspect is usually the easy part, understanding the problem, understanding how the data was collected, understanding uh, how you can have an impact and, and, and getting the right partners to work together with you, I think is one of the biggest lessons learned we have from working in this space. There is a lot of things and a lot of very important problems that can and should be solved with data. And I think we have an amazing opportunity to work on those problems. But yes, it's, it's the easy, usually the easy part is the data science part of these projects. And if you were to think a little bit about what the next sort of five to 10 years looks like in the AI for good space, where do you find, you know, where do you think there's the most potential for change? And I guess that might mean a, a bit of a reflection on the work you've already done over the last three years about which projects have been the most successful and why but thinking forward a bit what you know what are we going to be talking about in 2030 as the sort of you know the great equalizer the great catalytic effect that ai had in x issue i think what i would what i would love to see is is a, a continuous investing in building very good data sets that can also help equalize like equalize the world basically correct i would love to see many more people learning how to use the ai tools i think the and this is something that i i realize is like thanks to like before in order to learn like machine learning like 20 years ago you need to go to a very good university usually in europe or in the us and that generated a huge inequality in many ways. But today, thanks to like these massive only courses, you have people around the world learning these skills, right? And that's something that we will see, hopefully we will see a huge impact from 
like hundreds and thousands or millions of people that can learn these tools. I would love to see more investment in building bridges between the NGOs and organizations and the tech sector, because I think that you have in the in the like in the tech world basically not just the tech sector but in the tech world in software developers you have a huge amount of people that would love to have the opportunity to work in these problems, and on the other side you have a huge amount of problems to solve, and usually the problem is you don't have a bridge between these two worlds. So I, I would love to see more investment in building these bridges between the two worlds where organizations can publish or, or talk about their problem. And then you, on the other hand, you have people that actually are willing to go and try to help them solve them, basically. So I want to see also more open, open source solutions, open source models, having a, a better understanding of these models, like more discussions from an ethical point of view, which models we should use, which models we should not build. So, but I, I am very optimistic about the future related to the power of AI, that the power of AI has, mainly about building more fairness around the world where you have solutions that can work in any other, in any country or any, in any place. I wonder if you, with all your experience working around the world as well, I wonder if you could offer any sort of creative suggestions around how other governments, international public organizations like UN entities, as well as NGOs, might partner with tech firms to establish some little r regulatory measures around how AI can be deployed in environments that may not necessarily be conducive to protecting the rights of its their citizens where um, civil rights might be at risk. And I'm thinking specifically around nation states where the either in active conflict settings where the laws that do exist aren't necessarily applicable because there are states of war and adherence to the rule of law is, is weak or places where the laws are written in such a way as to encourage investment from technology firms with the aim for with an aim of sort of economic growth and and advantage but maybe doing so at the risk of the rights of citizens are there creative solutions where these key players technological players technology firms and ngos and un agencies could come together and offer a sort of you know gray model for regula regulation in in place of law well, I'm definitely not a regulatory expert, so I, I don't. I think I can answer only from a data science perspective. Certainly, a lot of these, a lot of these issues, particularly in, in data, in data sharing, in privacy, are problems that need a lot of discussions. And you want to have like these type of organizations, like the tech sector, with the organizations, with the NGOs, with the working together basically and trying to have those discussions and trying to understand the limitations or trying to understand some of the ethical dilemmas that we have from a data science perspective. So, so I, I, do, I do think there is, there is a clear, like the, the world needs these organizations to work together to solve these problems. There's a lot of value in AI. We want to make sure that we have the right discussions and the right conversations about some of the dilemmas or problems we have with AI or problems we have with, with data. Yeah, I think you've, we've touched a lot in this conversation on bridge building and ways to connect the sort of technology sector with NGOs and the problem owners. I wonder if you could speak to sort of any ways that we can improve that. I think in the paper I wrote last year, there were some interesting 
issues that were surfaced during my interviews around some gatekeeper tendencies that happen with NGOs, where the relationships with the tech leaders are protected by senior vice presidents as a sort of you know, corporate asset at headquarter level, preventing people like yourself and your teams from talking to an education specialist in Sierra Leone, for example. And I wonder if you have in your experience, you know, some thoughts to add about how we collectively as a, as a community might try and improve opportunities or increase opportunities for bridge building. The challenge is there is that we need to make sure that we build the right incentive to share data, basically. And for example, in, in some cases, uh, some organizations have decided that, well, if I'm going to give you a, a government a grant from the government, some governments have decided if, if your research is funded by a government grant, well, at the end of your project, once you publish, you need to open the data set. And I think that's, that's something that is great. We need to invest in creating the right incentives to share data. Basically. And I don't think I don't think there are the right incentives to share data in the world today. So I, I would say that's that's a key thing for the world to, to solve. Related to building bridges, I don't have a solution for that. I, I do I do see there is a there is a big need for these bridges. And I think at least on our side, we have built some of these bridges with organizations that we're currently working, and we clearly see a need from the NGO perspective to have those conversations hopefully in the next few years we will see more tech people or tech literal people working in these organizations correct like that's there's a there's a fundamental gap in skill and that's something that at least on our side we're trying to fill part of that gap but that's not not enough basically we hopefully we will see more tech people working in some of these organizations and I, I do think that, that that is something that is starting to change. And, and, and again, I, I see more a lot of people motivated to work in NGOs to try to make a difference, basically. So so I hopefully that trend will continue. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, being being frank, I think changing the incentives is right, but difficult to do given the business ecosystem that exists specifically within the humanitarian industry, which is the experience that I can sort of bring to bear. But I think sort of similarly potentially to the technology industry having never worked in that industry but humanitarians are equally deeply competitive selectively transparent about the information they share about the projects that work and i would say interestingly the agencies that are most transparent or share the most information about the sort of ai for good projects in the humanitarian space are the technology firms rather than the humanitarian actors because the humanitarian actors have arguably and perversely less to gain because it means that they would lose their competitive edge within that system. And the the amount of resources that funds that industry is finite yeah. and arguably reducing. So we've seen in the UK that there's been a reduction in the official development assistance budget, partially you know, tied to the UK's response to COVID and the pandemic. But I think that's that, you know, some might argue that's a trend that's happening globally. So you know, the the incentives aren't right, as you say. And I think there is a lot of collaborative work that needs to be done between these two industries and equally with academia to try and think about new and novel ways that we can collaborate in a transparent way. And that might end up, you know, leading to a bit of disruption to the humanitarian industry, which may not be a bad thing, given that it's dominated by a dozen or more humanitarian actors who control 
several dozen billions of US dollars a year. I mean, that might that might be an industry that deserves a bit of a shakeup. Like, at least what I've seen successfully working is, for example, you have a conferences and, and journals that will say, in order for you to publish here, you need to open your data set. You need to open your code. You have the grant, some of the grant making organizations that say, we'll give you a grant, you need to open the data set at the end of the grant, basically. So I do think we need to, the, the incentives today are not there. We have the wrong, we have the opposite incentives, basically. So like of, of all the reasons you mentioned, we need to have, like as a, as a society, we need to understand there's a huge value. There's there's more value in opening these data sets for society. Even if for a particular organization, there's no value, there is value for, the, for society. So I, I do think we need, the world needs to invest in creating ways to create those incentives, basically. So yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I think we're drawing towards the end. Brent, I don't know if you'd like to ask any other questions. No, I love where this is going. And it's true, the incentives are so important. They're sort of pillars between tech and humanitarian organizations and academia. And I think academia is, they're starting to realize their role in this triangle and how they can facilitate standardization and data sharing. So it's it's really cool. Just as a lab, do you see yourselves as all of a sudden becoming a player that you didn't necessarily not want to be, but it just kind of, everything's evolving where you're in a pivotal position to push AI for good. And you're actually playing an important role in advancing AI for good. So it's kind of cool. We try to make it as, as transparent as we can in the sense that when we, when we engage with the organization, we, we say, we will work with you on these problems. If possible, we want the data to be open, we want the models to be open, and we want to publish the results. Basically, like that's something that for us is also really important: is you want others to judge whether what you're doing makes sense or not. You want to get feedback from 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 other academics that have worked in these problems. So that for us is something that is is a fundamental part of the work we do. There's two questions that I'd like to ask you before we close. The first one is. You know, what are you working on right now in the lab that you're super excited about that you can share with us? So one of the projects that I really like is we are working with trying to identify whales using satellite imagery. And that is something that is disruptive in the sense that before, in order to understand and do a census of whales, you need to fly a plane. And of course, you cannot fly a plane in a lot of times in, across the world, basically. So the... There was a huge bias in the way that the, the data was collected in many ways. And it was also very expensive for organizations like NOAA to do a survey. With this technology, what we're doing is we're working with high resolution satellite imagery. And we have a model that can uh, detect and understand whether, whether there was a whale or not. And the, the, the types, the different types of whales. So I, I'm very excited about that project. We continue to work in, with seeds in India, trying to have models also using satellite imagery to understand the different type of houses and which of those houses are less prepared for a natural disaster, for example. And that can help the organizations in India on the ground to prioritize which of these houses or which of these families they need to work before to be better prepared for the next uh, natural disaster. We are continue working with Nature Conservancy Group in understanding solar panels in and basically like having a uh, measurement of how how much solar panels are are out there. This is also particularly in India, but we want to use these same models across the world, where we can survey how many solar panels and and whether these countries are making the are making an impact on on have a sustainable energy or, or not, basically. So, 
we are working in a lot of very interesting problems. So Yeah, that's interesting. Well, when linked to that, we usually close with a sort of sci-fi futuristic question. And I'd like to ask you what futuristic AI application you would love to see and what would it do? And equally, what futuristic AI application would you love to see come out of your lab? So this is something that a lot of times people don't think is futuristic, but it is because it hasn't been solved today. Like the most dangerous thing we do in our lives, at least for majority of the humans that live in the planet, is to drive a car. And for the last 10 years, we've been five years away of having a self-driving cars, right? And we're not there yet. As a society, we're not there. So even though it doesn't look like a very long-term focus, I, I still I think that we're more long-term. The problem is more long-term than we think it is. But I would love my older daughter is eight years old. I would love her not to have the risk to drive a car like I do. So that's <laughs> that's my that's a, an ask on my side. On my lab, I want us to continue increasing our knowledge of working with satellite imagery. We believe there's a huge potential in satellite imagery and we want to continue investing and, and actually working with what I call global models that are models that are trained on data that can be used to get an understanding of what's happening in the world using satellite imagery. We are investing in our planetary computing as part of that and I would love to see countries and organizations getting great understanding of what is happening across the world through the eyes of satellites. I think that's a technology that is amazing and it has a huge potential that has in big use. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think we've seen some really interesting use cases, but seeing what it could deliver at scale would be really incredible. Yeah. Well, Juan, thank you very much for your time. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you and thank you for giving us the opportunity to get to know you. Pleasure to meet you, both of you, and look forward to continue the conversation in the future. This brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Today to a close.